Thank you so much for listening to Urbanistica podcast. I am Mustafa Sharif, an urban planner, and you're more than welcome to join my big journey of exploring the making of smarter and more livable cities. Please don't forget to follow Urbanistica on the different social media platforms. And also let's connect on LinkedIn. Big thanks to Urbanistica podcast partner, Avery. Avery is an international engineering and design company providing sustainable solutions in the fields of energy, industry, and infrastructure. Are you ready for a new episode? Let's go for it. I have the pleasure to welcome you, Carlo Ratti, to Urbanistica podcast. Hey, and uh, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. How are you doing? Wonderful. How was your visit to Helsingborg? It was great. You know, I, I, I had planned to be here earlier, but then COVID hit. So it's, uh, it's my first time in town. Nice. Welcome. How do you like the town? Very interesting. What I like is the relationship with uh, water. And also, you know, the yesterday I, I had lunch with the mayor and the mayor of Copenhagen. And uh, how the greater Copenhagen area really uh, works as a polycentric city, which is what we are seeing in many other parts of the world as well. Yeah. And so how long are you staying? Did you have the chance to, to walk around the city? I did quite a bit. Yes. Yeah. So uh, you are our storyteller. How would you like to introduce yourself and, and what are you passionate about? Well, I'm not, sh- I'm not sure if I'm a, I'm, I'm a particular storyteller, but uh, um, I'm passionate about cities. I think cities, uh, uh, first of all, you know, we... We didn't have cities around 10,000 years ago, and then uh, humanity discovers this beautiful way to bring us together, to share ideas, to share goods, share chromosomes, you name it, uh, in order to make sure that together we're more than each of us individually. So since uh, 10,000 years ago, cities have been this beautiful human invention uh, that has accelerated human progress. Why you start to be so passionate about cities? Um. Uh, you, you know, you could look at different things. You know, one thing perhaps is more uh, related to my studies and, you know, studying engineering, architecture, infrastructure. There could be one way to read it. But I like to think that another thing is probably just out of lived experience. I mean, I, I spent a lot of time in different cities. I've been growing up in different cities. I, the other day I was thinking that if I take all the cities where I spent uh, six months of my life, um, there's probably 20 of them around the planet, uh, you know, from Milan to Turin to... New York to Boston, uh, London, Cambridge, uh, you, you name it. I don't want to, uh, in, in some, in, in also in Australia, you know, Sydney or, uh, or Singapore. Um, and, uh, and so by looking at this, uh, looking at diversity of city, but, and also how they still fulfill their primordial function. We were saying before bringing us together, probably that's also what uh, led me to, to, to look mm. at this as a field of investigation. Yeah. And, and Carlo, we would love to know more about you. So tell us where you grew up, your childhood, what did you work with, study? Yeah, so I, uh, I was born in Italy, Northern Italy. Uh, my family is both from Milan and Turin. And then uh, I actually grew up for a few years also in, uh, in, uh, in the countryside next to Asti. There's kind of beautiful hills, the winemaking region in Northern Italy. Um, but then uh, when I started studying, then I moved first to Paris and then I moved to Cambridge, UK. Then I moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts, where MIT is. And, uh, and in the meanwhile, also living in many other cities. So that's, as I was saying, it was a little bit of this kind of discovering uh, yeah. while living. And, and what is your, your, your work now focusing on? 
As I was saying, we're passionate about cities and uh, and we do this in different ways. We look at research at MIT with Sensible City Lab. We look at uh, design with our design office in New York, in uh, uh, Italy, in, in the UK. Um, and uh, we also look at this through the lens of startups and uh, new companies. And uh, so we got the growing ecosystem, uh, both in the, U- in the US and, uh, and in Europe. So there are three different ways to look at cities through the lens of research or projects and products. Yeah. And also like in your research, you focus the use of big data and the internet of things in, in order to innovate the future cities. Like if, can you simplify it for us? What does it mean? Yeah, first of all, let me start by saying I don't like to focus too much on technology, but you know, the important thing is actually how we can accelerate urban transformation, for instance, to make our cities uh, more sustainable, to reach the net zero carbon goal that most cities have set for themselves, to make cities more inclusive, to avoid you know, segregation and what we call liminal ghetto. So those are the big objectives. Now, data is kind of a new tool. Digital data is a tool we didn't have a few years ago. We have it now. And it allows us to read the city in a different way. Somehow, you know, if you go back to the 19th century, at the time, one of the greatest urbanists at the time, Ildefonso Cerda, he's a person who actually designed a major expansion of Barcelona at the time. And uh, in his book, The Great Theory of Urbanization, he says that he's dreaming about the day when, thanks to data, um, working with cities will become like a science. Now, that day has arrived. So data means we know much more. We, we can read dimensions of the city that were impossible to grasp just a few years ago. I'm thinking about mobility. I'm thinking about people's interaction. Uh, I'm thinking about, you know, we, we, we pioneered the lab, the initial work using cell phone data to understand the city. So all of this elucidates dimension of uh, urban agglomeration that uh, we couldn't grasp before. And they can be a great input if you want to design, transform, innovate in cities. Mm. But now also we're having some tools like uh, working with AI. So what do you think? Like, uh, can we trust the AI generating scenarios for future cities based on the data or, or how do we work? How should we work? Yeah, look, with every new technology, we need to be very careful. We need to be careful about AI for sure. We need to be careful about data. You know, every technology can be used for good and for bad, but still, It means, uh, you know, we got new tools. We got a new arsenal of options. And it's a little bit like in the Renaissance, you know, the big changes in the Renaissance were coming from the ability to measure things that were not measurable before, to, to use perspective, to discover perspective and so on. And that changed uh, many arts in, uh, in a similar way, design and urban design is being changed by this ability we have to look at dimensions that we couldn't grasp before. Mm-hmm. And I also would love to talk with you about, about city safety. How, how do you define it? Yeah, safety is, is very important. It relates also to communities and, you know, to segregation, integration in cities. Uh, actually, we do something very interesting here in Helsingborg, which is looking at AI applied to visual images. So that's quite innocuous AI. You just, uh, innocent AI, you, you just look at a, a large amount of urban images and look at the perception of safety. Um, and, uh, and that is a first step then again, to improve the city, to make it more friendly to citizens. Mm. Can you, can you explain to us more in details? What does it mean? Like on the ground? Yeah. Well, first of all, let me do a step back. Um, in urban planning, people have been looking at visual images of the city for a very, very long time. In the 20th century, there was a very famous urbanist called Kevin Lynch. He wrote a book called the image of the city. And, uh, basically he looked at this kind of visual approach to study cities. But other people like Alan Jacobs uh, looked at that, you know, and, uh, and uh, another person was William White. 
uh, William White in New York around 50 years ago, he was taking a lot of footage, uh, images and videos of the city and then analyzing the footage to understand how people behave. Now, so that's a, that's a well-established line of research in cities, but traditionally it required, required a huge amount of uh, work, huge effort in order then to annotate images, to understand what they mean. Uh, for instance, even just to count people in images, all of that was manual, so it required hours and hours and hours of processing. Now, all of that can be automated, especially since a few years ago, uh, with um, most of you probably, most listeners probably have heard about, you know, DeepMind and, you know, Deep Learning is a uh, different, is, is a type of AI that's very, very good at that, you know, segmenting images and counting people and looking at the building and recognizing the age of the building, the style of the building and so on. And, uh, and so there's a new space. We've been doing quite a lot of papers in, in this space, uh, quite a lot of research, uh, uh, which is about using this huge amount of new images we have. Think about Google Street View. You know, every city, not every city, but yeah. many cities on the planet are actually scanned by a Google car um, every few months or every few years. And, uh, but then also all the pictures we upload and we make public, we share with everybody else. So to take all of that and then you, use, as I was saying, deep learning in order to analyze these images, you can discover many dimensions of the city. Uh, you can start predicting gentrification before it happens. You can do most of the things that uh, a person will be able to do, but you can just automate it, do it faster mm. and uh, on a larger number of images. And as part of this, going back to your question, again, you know, the perception of safety is quite important. You know, when we just look at the picture, we know if we're safe or not in that environment, and they can also change between the day and the night. Sometimes it's enough just to have a bit more lighting and we feel safer. So again, by doing this is about looking at psychology, looking at big data with psychology, with human psychology applied to, again, to millions and millions of images in order to understand what are the places where we can actually make the city look safer, which usually then is, will lead to the city actually being safer. Mm. Can you give us uh, an example of like that you apply the situation? Yeah, well, I, I, I wouldn't be able to point to a specific uh, area, but I think if we had, you know, th th this is unfortunately just, you know, audio, but uh, if we had just, you know, a map, I can show you by analyzing this kind of millions of images, the places where, again, everybody, and I say everybody is a person, uh, but also based on the AI applied to, to all these images, would consider some of the places with a perception of insecurity. I, I know, like, to program, to, you, you program the machine, you program the AI first. So what are the aspects that you program that is related to safety? Yeah, so actually, th th that's a very good question because it goes back to the, really, to how uh, this type of AI works. And yeah. This type of AI is, you can think about it like, you know, a simplified brain, the BA brain. No, it's not yet as sophisticated as a human brain, but a simplified brain. And what you do, you have a what is called a training set. So you feed it some information. You say, let's do a simpler example. Like, you know, if you want to teach this type of AI to detect the age of a building, it's a recent paper we published a few months ago. So you take a city, you got uh, all these kind of images, say from Google's review, they can be whatever, hundreds of thousands or millions of images, depends how big the city is. And then uh, um, what you're doing is a training set, which means that for a number of those buildings, you know the age. So it's like, you know, teaching a, a kid and saying, you know, look at this building, this is 18th century, look at this building, this is mid 19th century, this is rationalist, this is this style, this is the other style and so on. Um, and, uh, and you show that for a certain number of, uh, of buildings, and that's called a training set. So you're teaching the AI to recognize things. And then after that, 
the system can keep on doing its own thing uh, on its own. So it will it will have learned to recognize the style and the age of a building, and then can keep on doing it on its own. And so you can apply this to many things. You can apply, you know, you can teach. You need a training set. So the important thing is, you know, what you feed it. And mm -hmm. then um, even, you know, by the way, another example I could give is today many people are working with self-driving cars. Now in recent years, again, deep learning has been used for self-driving cars. Again, you take a car, you actually see how people drive, and so you feed a system. A AI system with information about how humans drive and the system learns. We'll keep on doing the same things over and over again. It's, it doesn't need to be very smart. It's just, you know, you teach him how to do something and then he keeps on doing it. The beautiful thing here, however, is that you automate it and you can apply it to a huge scale and also it can be very, very fast. Mm -hmm. Now, it would be the same if you go back to William White uh, 50 years ago, he would have to teach his students you know, you recognize this person or recognize this building, you recognize gentrification, this or that, and then, you know, the students will keep on doing. The advantage here is that you don't need the students, you can have, you know, an army, uh, an infinite army of computing power also acting very, very fast. So that's uh, that's how you do it. So the very important thing, and, and this is, a, I think something very important in, in, in cities today, is uh, what is a training set? Because in a training set, for instance, you can have biases. We see it with facial recognition is the same thing. You know, you got a training set to teach the system to recognize a face, but you know, the training set can be, can be biased, uh, for instance, racially biased and so on. So the very important thing is again the training set. And for your initial question about uh, the perception of uh, safety, um, the training set come actually from uh, things like the Mechanical Turk, where we ask thousands of people, you feel safe or not. And that would be the training that then the system, the AI will keep on applying. Yeah. So what are the, the aspects that makes people don't feel so safe? Yeah, well, the, the, the first thing is that you want to do is actually just ask, you know, compare images and say, do you feel safe or not? And compare many images, you feel safer here or there, A, B, A, C. Uh. So you just, you know, you create this kind of hierarchy of where you feel safe or not. So uh. that allows you to see the places where you feel safe or not. Then after that, you can actually, yes, go and look at what are the commonalities amongst all those images. And, and, and clearly, you know, during, I mean, there's many things uh, sometimes, you know, when you have a place where you cannot get out, you can run away, you know, cul-de-sac in French. Um, there's something that typically, you know, all of us um, will feel unsafe and actually through the training set, that is what then the AI will apply. You got uh, uh, issues about illumination, not only illumination, but you know, not, not only the level of lighting during the night, but also distribution. You can make a place safer just by changing the variety of the of the, the lighting levels. Um, and that probably goes back to something that's deeply rooted in our psychology. There's uh, uh, this beautiful uh, uh, discipline, which is human ethology, looking at uh, urban ethology, sorry, uh, which is looking at uh, how we, as animals, we, we inhabit urban space. Mm. Do you find it uh, difficult to introduce AI to cities to tell them, okay, you, we can apply AI on this aspect within city? Yeah, well, if you, if you explain it, we, we, we believe that we always need to be very transparent, especially with citizens. So if you explain it, if you see that basically this is just uh, asking a number of people, a sample of people about uh, rating, whatever it is, we said, you know, made a few examples about safety, about the age of buildings, uh, you name it, about gentri upcoming gentrification, about uh, any dimension. And then, you know, you simply, the AI is simply a way to take that as learning and multiply it for the whole city. So, mm. but the important thing is that we need to be very, very transparent with people and also with the training set to make sure there's no biases. Yeah. 
do you think uh, um, or is is the the training that's happening in Helsinki can i use the same let's say in my home country in hometown in baghdad um it, that's a very good question for instance we did this um, with um um again the age of buildings and clearly if you just recognize the style it, you can think about it the way to answer this question is really would a human be able to do it again AI in this case applied this way is only a way to automate what the human brain would do. You know, you learn from a number of people, thousand people, ten thousand people, you name it, and then you keep on repeating that. And so, if a human would behave in the same way, then the same AI would apply. But for instance, we 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 tried to think about something easier in this case about the style of buildings, the age of buildings. Uh, I have been to Baghdad. It's one of my my places where I'd, I'd love to go. Unfortunately, because of the events of the past few years, I wasn't uh, wasn't able. But uh, is is really a place where I want to go. Hopefully, uh, in the future. Yeah, and also you know there's this. Yeah, actually, what one of the reasons I want to go to Baghdad is that in the region is really where humans around ten thousand years ago discovered cities uh, in the in, in the whole region. That you know that magic invention by humanity happened in that part of the world. But having seen many pictures of of Baghdad, I would say if you train a system, say in Sweden, about recognizing the age of buildings, and you apply to Baghdad, wouldn't understand much. In the same way as if you had a an architectural historian who knows everything about buildings in Sweden and goes to Baghdad, you know, would be very confused because again, mm-hmm. styles and uh, and uh, and the age of buildings and how they did and developed over time is very different. So again, it, it depends. But the way to answer the question is always think about would a human be able to do it, and if so, then you can automate it with AI. Yeah, Carlo, what is your biggest challenge when you work with technology and cities? Well, first of all, as I was saying. Uh, Oh, maybe one way to say it is, you know, when you work with technology is really that you should not work with technology. I mean, the biggest <laughs> challenge is that uh, uh, it's really that, that often people just get in love with technology, which is not a good thing to do. I think you want to use any technology to try to innovate. The important thing is uh, innovation is about trying new things. Uh, is about, again, the way to build the future is uh, by trying, by being mutagenic, in quotes, by, by, by trying different things. like we, in the same way as it happens with uh, natural evolution. And, and then let people decide what type they want. And so I would say that the challenge often is that people get stuck on this or the technology. That's not the point. The point is how we can improve human and urban progress. Mm. And I'm an urban planner, and many of the listeners are working with architecture and urban planning and city development. What should urban planners stop doing when we plan cities? Um. Well, you know, you can think about many things, but let me tell you the first thing that comes to mind. And uh, in the, uh, our design office working has been working on the expansion of Brasilia, the massive plan of Brasilia. And um, well, as much as I love the work of uh, Oscar Niemeyer, Brasilia, as you know, was Oscar Niemeyer and Lucio Costa. Uh, I think Brasilia, in the same way as Chandigarh and many other cities of the 20th century, are the example of what you shouldn't do, to plan a city top down. Uh, a city should always be a collaborative endeavor. The richness of a city comes from from many, many hands uh, being applied. It comes from many different disciplines to take part in it. And this idea, the idea of the 20th century, one single person could design a city for millions of people without even bothering to ask them. <laughs> you know, it's a, and, and, and again, I mentioned Brazilian Chandigarh, there's many other examples. Another thing that comes to mind is, um, what I find is beautiful uh, example of this approach is Le Corbusier in the 1920s in a pavilion called the Pavilion of the New Spirit, the Pavillon de l'Esprit Nouveau in Paris, presents his plan for Paris. His plan is very simple. It's basically demolish most of the city, just keep 
Notre Dame, a few other things as memories yeah. from the past and replace everything with these uh, modernist uh, uh, towers, you know, uh, cross-shaped uh, towers. And uh, there was a picture uh, from his presentation. He's Le Corbusier with a model of this proposal called the Plan Voisin, uh, and he scanned, you know, showing it to the world. And you see the, the hand of the architect, the hand of Le Corbusier, the hand of the architect, but you could say almost the hand of God, you know, single-handedly making decisions for millions of people without even bothering to, to ask him, is this what you want to do, to demolish all of Paris? Now, luckily that was not implemented, and he got, uh, <laughs> he got his chance in Chandigarh, again, very interesting, but didn't really work that well, because, again, a city is a collaborative endeavor, and uh, we should never... Yeah. If you will be in charge of all cities on this planet, and you are allowed to introduce a new policy or add one physical thing in, in, in all the cities, what will you add and why? Um, um, uh, uh, first, I wouldn't want to be in charge of all the cities. It's, it's really the opposite of what we said before, and that really citizens should be in charge and make decision, yeah. decisions in, in their city. But let me tell you something that I think is a problem today. So cities need to innovate faster, especially if you want to decarbonize. If you want to get to net zero, most cities committed to being net zero by 2050 or 2040 or, or another date. And you know, nobody really knows how to get there. And we need to innovate fast. And one problem today in cities is procurement because procurement is based on, not on innovation, it's based on minimizing risk. So procurement today is based on what is called best practices. So look at what another city has done, maybe, a process started maybe 10 or 20 years before, and then another city did something, they built it, they implemented it, and then it was successful. What you do is, you know, you follow best practices, so you copy the same thing. So best practices lock the future into the past. And uh, we cannot, you know, that's not an option anymore. It's too slow. It doesn't promote innovation, it just minimizes risk. And so I think the city should take more risk, should maybe learn from venture capital. You take risk on a smaller scale, Cities should use more moonshots. I heard yesterday, for instance, that the city of uh, Stockholm is, uh, has a moonshot at the moment, uh, which is based on finding new way to electrify the mobility system in the city. The city of Helsinki uh, launched a moonshot, uh, actually we were one of the winners two years ago. Uh, it's now been implemented to decarbonize the district heating system. The project is called the Helsinki Hot Heart. Um, I will not tell you in detail, unless you, you, you want, but, 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 but basically... Tell us, yeah. No, but... It's about again decarbonizing district heating, and it's about what we call it's about an archipelago of floating islands that can store heat in order then to to get the heat from uh, seawater heat pumps. Uh, you get energy when there's overproduction in terms of wind energy, and then you use that to heat the city. And we we are we're working on the first uh, uh, prototype on the first island uh, as we speak. But um, but the point is not about this; is about the method, the process. And so I think cities should uh, think more about moonshots should think more about trial and error, should prioritize innovation instead of you know, minimizing risk. Mm. And Carlo, you're working a lot with, with AI and programming and in making future cities. Is, is it true what we see in the media that like uh, we train robots and in, the, in 50, 100 years robots will, will kill us and now they are taking our jobs? You know, like this image about the future. Yeah, it's a good point. Well, first of all, this is an old... Uh, uh, humans have been scared about this for a long time. There's a beautiful book by Louis Mumford, who's also a, a great scholar and writer about cities. Uh, the book is uh, around 100 years old now, uh, and he really talks about this. It's called Techniques and Civilization. And he talks about this. Now, at the time, his kind of final answer, final view was basically 
what happens is that we will outs- we outsource to technology the things we don't like while we keep to ourselves the things that we like most and where we are better than technology. So think about what happened in the past uh, thousands of years of human evolution. So what we've been doing, we've been giving out to technology, say to a tractor in agriculture, you know, to do the heavy work, but we will still be the one deciding what type of crop to do and, you know, how to organize things and, you know, what's the best way to grow that crop and so on. So we will keep the things we, we, we liked most, maybe, for instance, in that case, to minimize also, also labor, physical labor. Uh, and we were stronger skilled than machine in, uh, from an intellectual point of view. And, uh, for instance, if you, you know, I told the, somebody here where we are in, in Sweden or anywhere in Europe, like 300 years ago, when the majority, according to countries, about over 90% of the population was in farming, you would have told them, you know, well, farming is going to be two or 3% of the population. Everybody would have freaked out, but it would happen <laughs> is that actually we, we managed to outsource that, uh, with uh, the green revolution to machines and a number of other things. And then we started doing other things. We started, you know, for instance, focusing more on cooking and the beautiful, you know, cooking scenes that we have all over Europe, all over the world. So that is what has happened in the past. You could say that this is going to happen still today. Some people believe that some other people believe that there's a difference. And the difference is that there's a point when machines are better than us at uh, everything. So in the past, machine might have been stronger than us. And tractor is much stronger than us. But uh, we are much stronger in other things. For instance, the intelligence to put behind driving the tractor. Um, it is possible with this idea of singularity at one point, machines will be stronger than us, smarter than us. You know, at one point, you can, uh, then, then the question is, you know, what are we going to do if uh, machines can do everything better than us? You know, again, artificial intelligence on one hand and robotics and, and all of that. Um, and here we have, um, I mean, th- this is a long conversation. I think it's probably better to, to, to look at what people <laughs> say online. I, 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 I like to think that for the foreseeable future will still be better than machines in a number of dimensions. And so there is still a place for humans, but if you take the long views, a, a professor I had at Cambridge, um, the astronomer Royal in the, um, in the UK called Martin Rees, uh, he wrote, I remember a few years ago, an article in the financial times where he was saying, well, you know, um, it's okay, you know, machines are better than us. Basically, what he calls uh, electromechanical intelligence is better. You can ship it to other planets. It's very difficult to ship biological intelligence to other planets. We die before getting there. But actually, machines and intelligence, artificial intelligence, electromechanic intelligence, you can ship to other planets. They're going to be, get better than us. And then it's okay. They're our, like our progeny. So it's okay that they take over and we just, you know, let them run in the same way as we let the next generation run. We'll just be a different type of generation. You can also take that view, but that's probably for another podcast. Yeah, exactly. So the last uh, two questions. Uh, the first one is that you give me and the listeners three takeaway messages. What should we think about when we plan future cities? Oh, three takeaway messages. Uh, where here's my my list. I would say people, people, and people. So somehow you know. It's it, interesting. It, You're working with that and AI. Then you tell me people. Yeah, because I think, as I was saying before, it's not about technology, it's about, uh, you know, the, the old uh, Romans, they had two words for city. One was herbs. Herbs is a physical city, the city, city made of bricks and stones. Um, and the other one was civitas, which is the community of citizens. And, you know, the two for them were, you know, none of them could exist without the other. And if you just focus on technology, we really forget about the civitas, about the community of citizens. Citizens should be the one deciding what type of technology enhance what type of city they want. Mm. 
So you're three takeaway messages, people, people, people. Yeah. <laughs> and the last question is going to be you asking it to me and to the listeners. What is your question to us? Um, yeah, my question to you and, uh, and to the listener, especially if you've been around all the discussions in the past few days and so on, is really what type of city you want. Again, technology is neutral. Uh, well, maybe it's not neutral, but you know, can be good or bad, can be used in different ways. And what type of city you want, as we were saying before, you know, uh, city making is part of a feedback loop, trial and error, you know, looking at things and deciding, I like this, I don't like that. Sometimes we want also to show the dystopian side of technology. So we are, we create antibodies, you know, is what happened with hacking as well, especially white hat hacking that you see the vulnerability of a system. I, I, we've done many projects like that where we showed also the dystopian side of how a city could be because through that, I think, you know, as citizens, we can decide, well, that's really where we should not mm. go. So the question for me to you, to the listeners, would be, you know, based on all the things you've been listening during the podcast or you've been seeing in the city uh, over the past week and so on, you know, what type of city you want? Yes. We keep the conversation up this summer and uh, thank you so much for giving your valuable time to record this episode. Thank you very much for a, for a very nice conversation and uh, to be continued. Well, thank you so much for listening to Urban Stika podcast. I hope you really enjoyed this episode. You learned something new and also got inspired by the guest. Don't forget to share the episode on your social media and recommend it to people you think they are really interested in this topic. Thank you so much again for giving your valuable time to Urban Stika podcast. I am Mustafa Sharif. Keep up the good work. Keep loving cities.